Welcome to the Eternal Connection, a radio broadcast ministry of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Whether it be through prescribed behaviors, rituals, or practices, every religion in the world teaches that if we desire to know God, it is our responsibility to find Him and know Him. Christianity, however, teaches something very different. Christianity teaches that God has come to us and has revealed His love for us by putting on flesh in Jesus Christ and by giving us His Word through which He continues to speak to us today. We're glad you've joined us as Pastor Jay continues leading us through the Bible in the Gospel of John, right here, right now on The Eternal Connection. And once again, you are eternally connected and a very blessed Palm Sunday to all of you. So glad that you can join us here on The Eternal Connection as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of John in God's Word and the Bible, learning about Jesus' love for us, God's love for us in Christ as uh, Jesus begins Holy Week here this week, making his way all the way to the cross where he would lay down his life for the sins of the world. Uh, because as God prophesied long ago, he has no pleasure in the death of anyone and desires all to repent and turn to Christ and be saved. We pray that uh, you do know Jesus, and if not, we pray this time together in his word would reveal him and his love to you. Again, my name is Pastor Eric J. from St. Mark Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska, joined in studio as always by my friends Chip, Jason. How are we doing, guys? Doing great. Good, Good. morning, everyone. Yeah, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. We are uh, rapidly approaching. Uh, it is now Holy Week. So just because I'm generally the one that's always asking questions, and if there's others out there listening that are new to the show. Well, we or, have two listener questions, so you're not the only one today. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> there's three of you. It's but <laughs> Palm Sunday, we're uh, not talking about trees or beaches. Like, what is Palm Sunday? Well, for, we, are, we are talking about palm trees. We are. Yep, palm branches. Oh, um, okay. What is it? It's Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He had, uh, if you read the Gospel of Luke, back in chapter nine, he had set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning that he he was destined to go to Jerusalem, as he told his disciples many times, to be handed over, to to be betrayed, to be crucified um, for the sins of the world. And this is his final entrance into the city, and most importantly, this is the first and last time that Jesus would allow himself to be proclaimed as the son of David, as the king, as the Messiah, without telling his disciples to be quiet, without uh, any mitigation. He is letting this be public, and he is receiving that praise um, while coming in a way that no one would have expected, uh, coming humbly, not on the back of a steed like a warrior, uh, the Messiah that Israel expected, but instead on the back of a beast of burden. Uh, on the back of a service animal, because Christ was coming as the suffering servant, as the king who serves his people with his own body, with his own death. So a great dichotomy as you look at it, um, and we're not going to get into it today, but uh, the shouts of the people giving the right words, but yet not quite understanding exactly what kind of king Jesus was going to prove to be when he was hung on the cross and the sign was nailed above his head, this is the king of the Jews. So the reason it's called Palm Sunday is because they used palm branches 
um, kind of like party streamers, or that's what they used back then, uh, not only to wave, but also to lay down to cover the ground in addition to coats and everything else um, for the king to walk on. And a, a cool tradition that I wanted to mention is that, you know, at the beginning of Lent, uh, several weeks ago, uh, where we had Ash Wednesday, the ashes are quite often uh, used or, or they're created by burning the, the palm branches from the, the year before after they've dried out. And so it's, it kind of completes a full circle. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So um, with no further ado, uh, that was a great question, it Jason. Was. Uh, we also have two other listener questions. Thank you, guys. That's our favorite part of the show. It, it, we, it is. We encourage them to keep coming. Uh, but before we get into the questions and before we continue in John 18, which uh, is Passion Week, Um, in John's gospel. Chip, why don't you pray for us? Okay. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, be with us. Uh, Send your spirit uh, that he would uh, do what you sent him to do, which is to remind us of everything that Jesus did for us uh, as he uh, quickly approaches being arrested and the trial and then ultimately his his death. Uh, But then as we look forward to the end of this week, where he rose again, uh, victorious over death, that we could join you and he in heaven forever. Be with us this morning, Heavenly Father. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so we do. We have two listener questions. They uh, went to eternalconnectionradio.com, and they uh, filled out the little form, yep. and uh, we're just thrilled. Uh, so the first question uh, comes to us. Uh, the question is, uh, are all sins equal in God's eyes? Well, in Leviticus, uh, this might be a question to a question, but doesn't Leviticus uh, address different levels of punishment for different sins? Yes. Yeah. Would that would that uh, play into that answer potentially? Yeah, it absolutely would. Uh, I think we have to make a, a distinction here between, um, <clears throat> let's say, the quality of sin or the offense of sin to God and the consequence of that sin. Those two things are not the same. All sins are equal in the eyes of God as far as their quality. There is no measurement of imperfection. Perfect is perfect is perfect. Right? There's there's no... Which, me- would, be, which would be Jesus. Which would be Jesus. There's no measurement of perfect. It is or it isn't. There's also no measurement of imperfect. It is either perfect or... Not. Imperfect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so in God's eyes, one small sin makes you just as imperfect as a lifetime of sin, like the thief on the cross who admitted, I live my whole life deserving to be crucified to a cross, and yet was told, based off of his simple confession and trust in Christ, he would be saved and in paradise with Jesus. So the offense of sin is equal. That does not mean that the practical consequences of sin in this life are equal. Me stealing a pack of gum from the corner store when I was 12 years old is an equal sin to murder because God says do not steal and he says do not murder. But the consequences of me stealing a pack of gum and killing my neighbor are are not on the same playing field at all, right? right? So in Leviticus, Because God not only was calling his people to live a different life, uh, but also using his law as a curb, as we often refer to it, some of the uses of the law, to dissuade people from committing sins, 
the punishments would be greater because yep. they would be a protection for other people, right? I would hope God would have a different response practically to stealing gum than he would murder. But that doesn't mean that the offense to God is is different. I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy of salvation if I steal a pack of gum or if I murder. But the consequences to those sins uh, are not the same. And so God's response to them in this life will not be the same. And you would expect that. Well, and I think it's important to uh, point out that we are sinners, right? So we don't become sinners because we steal a pack of gum when we're young. We we are born in sin. Right. So we are born essentially ready to die. Yes, as I often say, um, we sin because we're sinners. Right. An apple tree gives apples. It doesn't give oranges. Correct. Right? So I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. Right. So that's, again, original sin. Uh, that's the doctrine that teaches, as, as Romans 3 would say, uh, and this is a great text for this, and Paul's quoting Isaiah, uh, no one loves God. No one searches for him. There's no one worthy. Even their righteous deeds have become like filthy rags. That's communicating the essence of our sinful nature, the quality of our nature. That's different from the varying consequences of sin as they're played out. Absolutely. So just to be clear, as I'm a little unclear, the original question was... Are all sins equal in God's eyes? And and I'm hearing kind of a two-part answer that one, all sins are equal, but all consequences are not? Correct. Yeah. I mean... That's just true of the sin itself. Would you say the consequence of murder is the same as the consequence of lust? You mean in terms of like modern day court? Just the impact on my neighbor. Oh, they're very different. Yeah, they're very different. So so God, when he gives his law to men, I mean, if you go back to Exodus 20, God was giving this law so that his people would live differently. So those consequences are, are going to be different. It doesn't mean that... Lesser sins make us more worthy of heaven or less deserving of God's judgment. And I think it's, it's a good—I just thought that um, when we talk about what is the ultimate consequence of sin, the ultimate consequences of sin kind of makes everyone equal in that we all die. Yeah, right. That's, that's a great equalizer, right? right. And that's, that's we die because we are sinners, right. not just because we sin. right. Right, that's what God said. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Right, and in pain you will bear children. That that's passed on to us. We're we're born in sin. Right, that's what David says in Psalm fifty-one. In sin did my mother conceive me. So that's where we're all equal in God's eyes. And I don't, I can't speak for this person, but a question like this often stems from uh, either a reaction to or trying to support. Um, the, the church's or a Christian reaction to one sin versus another sin. I mean, pick your taboo topic, right? Homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion. All sin is equal in God's eyes, but that doesn't mean that the consequence is the same. And so, yes, there are certain things that, that we are going to have a bigger reaction to because they have a bigger consequence, mm-hmm. right? Especially uh, and particularly when, uh, re- not regardless of the consequence, but in addition to... Um, Sinful men try to start calling good what God calls evil and calling evil what God calls good. Then it is incumbent upon the church 
to focus on those issues and speak directly to them. So the sin is equal. No one is better than anybody else. But that doesn't mean that there aren't more grievous consequences to some sins than others. Absolutely. Okay. So I hope that answers your question, listener. You didn't leave your name, but you'll know if that was your question. So hopefully that was helpful. And and thank you. Thank you for the question. Keep keep them coming. So the second question uh, comes to us from another listener, and uh, she asks, is dedication the same thing as baptism? No. I mean— And my return question would be, what is dedication? So— the historic practice of the church when it when it comes to infants and their relationship with Jesus has been to baptize them as early as possible. And even though there was not Christian baptism in the Old Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul rightly connects these two um, in his epistle um, when he says that you've been circumcised by a circumcision made without hands in baptism. So going all the way back to the Old Testament, the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham, they were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Mm-hmm. Okay? That was, if you go back and read it in Genesis 15, God said, I'm putting my promise, my covenant to be your God. God is putting his promise to be your God in your flesh, is what he told Abraham. That's what circumcision does. When you circumcise your child at eight days old, God is making that child his child because God says so. How serious is God about this? Well, when Moses neglected to circumcise his son, uh, God was going to destroy him mm-hmm. had it not been for his wife Zipporah that stepped in and circumcised her son. So God wasn't messing around with this. This was how God was making people his own through the covenant of circumcision. Later in the New Testament, Paul would say, God continues to do that same thing in baptism. So when you baptize an eight-day-old infant, God is putting his promise in the heart of that child through the water of baptism the same way he did it when Jesus was circumcised at eight days old because he said he would do that. Not because it's magic water, not because it was a magic knife that they used, but because God said, when you do this, I will do this. And I'm telling you to do this because this is how I'm going to save you. It's how I'm going to make you my child. So that's the historic practice of the church. Relatively recently, within the past few hundred years, a practice of dedication came about. Which is, is really is, is dedication in the Bible? Yes, but a very different thing from what the common practice today is. Okay. So let's start with the practice of today. Uh, non-denominational churches, uh, some churches like Baptist, other denominations that don't believe in infant baptism. And they don't believe in it because because they insist that a person has to make a decision for Jesus, a cognitive, intelligent choice to, quote-unquote, make Jesus their Lord and Savior. So that's why they don't understand why people like us baptize infants and say they're saved. Now, why do we say that? Well, because that's what Peter says, that baptism now saves you. It says in numerable places in the Bible, particularly the one I always reference is Acts chapter 2, 
at Pentecost when the Apostle Peter is preaching the first Christian sermon and says, Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children. Acts 2.38, look it up. That, that's the first Christian sermon ever preached. Certain Christians struggle with that because they insist that faith is an intellectual endeavor, that faith is a work of mankind, that it is a decision we have to come to and to make on our own. Um, nowhere in Scripture is that taught. It is always taught, as Ephesians 2 says, that faith is a gift from God, just as it was for Abraham, who was a pagan worshiping the moon, who God came to, not because Abraham even knew who he was, but simply out of pure grace, and made Abraham his child through the promise and the command given to Abraham. So instead of baptizing, because they, they refuse to believe that God can save a child who, quote-unquote, can't decide for themselves, they will dedicate, which pretty much means <clears throat> the parents are communicating an intent to raise their child in the faith. But you know it's not the same thing as baptism because then they will also teach that once the child is old enough, if they decide to be Christian, then they will decide to get baptized. That puts all the assurance of salvation on the person. So it's like a pre-baptism? It's really a commitment of the parents. In, in true dedication, it, it, it has nothing to do with the child. It's, it's the parents dedicating to the church that we're going to raise this child uh, in the faith. They, they would never say that the dedication gives any assurance for the salvation of that child. It's mainly the parents making that dedication themselves. And what is the difference between, you know, full submersion and, and not? You know, I've seen both. The amount of water used, that's the only difference. <laughs> yep. There's no significance from, like, Scripture... We, we, we as sinful human beings try to make something out of it because uh, you will have the camp that says only can you, if I dunk this person. Yeah, you're not baptized unless you're fully submerged. Right. And what that says is your hope of salvation through baptism is in the amount of water used, not in the promise of God that says I will save you in baptism, which is— Who which made is, the water, by the way. Right, who made the water, <laughs> which is ludicrous because even in ancient Christianity— you can go back even looking at art history, and you have pictures of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus by sprinkling. Mm -hmm. Modern day, you wouldn't see that because we've chosen to, for whatever logic reason, say that that couldn't have been. But if you go back into ancient Christian documentation in, in, in the Didache, which is the early Christian worship book, going back to the third century, there are instructions on baptizing either by submersion or by sprinkling. And guess who you sprinkle? Who? Babies. Babies. Because you don't dunk an eight-day-year-old underwater. Right. So we, from the earliest records we have of the apostolic church, which is only bolstering what Scripture already teaches, they were practicing infant baptism. We don't have dedication records. That's a new thing that we're doing. And it only stems from a refusal to believe what clear, Scripture clearly, clearly teaches because it doesn't make sense to us. Well, if babies can't be saved because 
according to our mature adult understanding, they can't make decisions for themselves. You're going to have a real hard time explaining to me Elizabeth's words when Mary came to visit her. And when she heard the voice of Mary, Elizabeth said, when I heard the voice of my Lord, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Okay. Well, to me, when I let scripture stand on its own, this conversation is over. An infant in the womb can know its Lord. Absolutely. Look at David. Yeah. He talks about that in, in one of the Psalms he wrote. Psalm 139. I, I tell people that struggle with this, do you have a child? And if they say yes. I said, when that child was born, from the moment it came out of the womb, did you have to teach it who its mother was? Invariably, the answer is nope. no. That child inherently knew. It couldn't say mama. Maybe it couldn't even understand mama. But it absolutely did know. And if that sinful child can innately and inherently know its sinful mother, according to David in Psalm 139, I can know the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. And John the Baptist leaping for joy when he heard the voice of Mary because he knew Mary was his Lord's mother. Clearly, the baby can know. And, and this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So who's, who's saving us? My decision? Nope. No, Christ bringing us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter's saying, look, this thing that God did in the flood, how he saved people through the flood, through water, he saved them. Then he says in verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this, baptism, which corresponds to Noah's flood and the saving of people through water, now saves you. Okay, let's repeat that one more time. Baptism, which corresponds to how God has saved people throughout history through water, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, not based upon how much water you use. This is not a bath of your body. This isn't a baptism to clean your flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 1 Peter three eighteen through 22. I don't know how much more clear it could be made. Baptism saves a child. The big difference between baptism and dedication is uh, dedication isn't talked about in Scripture as regards how it's used today. Uh, and dedication is about what parents do for the Lord. Well, parents can't save their child. God saves, and this is how he has chosen to do it. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And when the disciples tried to stop infants from being brought to Jesus, that's when Jesus said, uh, it'd be better if you hung a millstone around your neck and walked into the ocean. Don't stand in between me and the pedions in Greek, in between me and the infants. So 
That's the difference, and it's a big one. A dedication is what parents are communicating is their intent. Baptism is what God has actually instituted that Paul connects to the covenant of circumcision to say, this is how God still saves you, even at eight days old. When Jesus was brought to the temple at eight days old, he was dedicated to the Lord. He was circumcised before that. But the dedication to the Lord, baptism wasn't instituted yet. Jesus was still a child. <laughs> the dedication, think about Samuel. When, when Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord, she left him at the temple. That wasn't, oh, I intend for him to be yours, God. No, it was, here he is. He is yours. So the biblical understanding of dedication isn't too far removed from baptism, even though it's not the same thing. It was truly being dedicated. That child now belongs to God. Um, so, no, baptism and dedication are not the same thing. Um, you know, can you dedicate a child? Sure. Um, but that is not the same thing as baptizing a child. Um, in the scriptures, words, you baptize. If you want the assurance that if the unthinkable happens to your eight-day-old child, the only assurance you have from scripture is baptism. That's, that's why Jesus said in Mark, whoever believes and is baptized. That's why Peter said to those who were cut to the heart, who were repenting, what do we do to be saved in Acts chapter 2? Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, means that the Holy Spirit is in water baptism, not a separate baptism. Right. But in Acts 2.38, Peter says, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for and your, your children. children. And what a marvelous, when we rest in that, we don't have to worry. I mean, I, I, I come back to, you know, if it were something that I had to, if my faith had anything to do with my dumb decisions, right. I, I, would, I would not make it. Yeah, it's, I, I don't understand what, what the insistence on decision theology is, that I'm saved when I decide to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Or, or the other most popular one is to say, when I, when I give my life to Jesus. I said this in Bible study. Um, no, I said it in a sermon, I think, two weeks ago. You did. Mm -hmm. Stop and think about what you're saying. I decided to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I'm sorry. If he is the Lord, you don't make him do anything. That, to me, is the, the whole just arrogance behind the whole thought process is, I, Jesus, I decided you're my Lord, so guess what? You don't have a choice. It's kind of nice that he decided to make us first. Yeah, and, and as I always say, you, he is the Lord. There's no decision you have to make in this process. He is either the Lord and Savior of the world or he's not, and he's not waiting for you to decide that that's the case for it to be the case. I believe he did that about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he died for your sins before you were born. Yeah. He chose to love you and forgive you and save you. Period. The only decision we have ever been able to make is to reject it. Adam and Eve did not choose to live. Right. They only had the choice to die. We pray our time together in God's Word has been a blessing to you and to your faith in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior of the world. 
If you enjoy listening to our program, we would love to hear from you. Go to eternalconnectionradio.com. To find our full episode archive, contact us, let us know you enjoy the show, or ask a question that Pastor Jay will answer on the air. God bless all of you. We look forward to connecting with you again next Sunday on The Eternal Connection.